gender, body acceptance, abortion, sex, racial justice, feminism, birth, parenthood, stigma, bodily autonomy, and more. This is Reproductive Left by Mabel Wadsworth Center, an independent feminist, nonprofit, comprehensive healthcare provider in Bangor, Maine. Join us as we explore topics that impact our sexual and reproductive health and lives. Here are your hosts, Catherine or Kat Chevery. Kat uses she, her pronouns and is our office assistant and community organizer. And Aspen Rulin. Aspen uses they, them pronouns and is our client and community advocate. Hello, I'm Kat and I use she, her pronouns. And I'm Aspen and I use they, them. Kat, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about body positivity, a movement that seems to have at least some confusion around the purpose behind it. I've noticed that. There's nothing like seeing someone post an ad for a diet supplement and tag it body positivity, the worst. One thing that I want to clear up at the top of this is that when I say the word fat throughout this podcast, I'm not using it as an insult. Fat isn't bad, it's just a way someone's body can be. I say this as a fat person. That being said, not everyone is okay with being described with the word fat because of how it's been used to harm them. With that out of the way, Kat, tell me more about what we mean by body positivity. When we talk about body positivity here, we're talking about accepting all bodies as they are. We should be uplifting bodies that don't fit into our society's standard of beauty and acceptability, which includes fat people and those with visible disabilities. In our society, it also has to be mentioned that this includes Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. I found a fantastic quote from Sharonda Brown, one of the founders of Wear Your Voice. Sharonda says, Quote, the concept of body positivity grew out of the fat acceptance movement and the scholarship of fat activists, first and foremost. But even within that movement, people of color were often silenced and overlooked by mostly fat white women dominating the conversation. Black women especially had long been talking and writing about how their blackness informed how they experienced fat antagonism. What most people don't understand about body positivity is that it started in response to white society's fear of the racial other. So this is a pretty wide-ranging topic. It really is, and certainly not one that can or should be simplified into a hashtag put on an advertisement for weight loss. God, I hate diet culture. I want to share another quote from Sharonda to broach the topic of fat shaming. Quote, having non-normative bodies puts us at greater risk for socially sanctioned abuse, state violence, hate crimes, and wrongful death. It's about so much more than just low self-esteem or shame. But these are the dominant themes we see present in mainstream body positive media. I think that's a powerful quote and a great segue into looking at the difference between fat shaming and what I've heard described as skinny shaming. One thing I'll note really quickly is what they can have in common. 
Most often, body shaming is directed at women or people who others assume are women. Because of this, it's easy to understand that body shaming can often be rooted in a patriarchal control of women's bodies. I'm coming from a background of currently being fat, but having been skinny at one point. I'm not a woman, but get misgendered as such often. I also want to point out the privilege that I have as a white person. When I was thin, almost all of the quote-unquote skinny-shaming comments that I'd get were clearly meant as a sort of compliment. Someone telling me to eat a burger was clearly telling me that I was fitting the societal ideal of thinness. And this was obvious to me even at 16. The one type of skinny shaming comment that I'd get that clearly was meant as an insult was one that was based in that patriarchal control I mentioned. People pointing out that my chest had gotten smaller. That's where I've seen actual negative impacts of the so-called skinny shaming in policing women's bodies into fitting into the male gaze. Except that this isn't an issue strictly faced by thin folks. Fat people who have small breasts, say, or don't have an hourglass shape, face the devaluation of not being considered sexy enough while also facing fat phobia. Similarly to you, my perspective is coming from that of a formerly thin person who would no longer be considered small by most standards. For much of my life, though, I was praised for being petite and subsequently cute. This was before I had developed any voice of my own and was likely perceived as docile and friendly because I didn't take up much space and was always comfortable fading into the background. In recent years, I've noticed some discomfort around how to acknowledge my larger size from people who have known me most of my life. Fat shaming isn't just an issue of self-esteem or shame, though those are important issues. Like Sharonda was saying in that quote you shared, fat phobia is an issue of well-being, safety, and health. Just one example is that people who are fat receive lower quality health care. And the health care issues that skinny people might face due to their size are based in fat phobia too. Like a health care provider assuming that just because their patient is thin, they are healthy, or that all weight loss is good. Before we dive into this more, let's take a quick break for a Mabel's Fast Fact with Abby. Are you looking for a primary care provider? You're in luck. Mibawadsworth Center started offering primary care last year and we're still welcoming new clients. Learn more at mabelwadsworth.org. A while ago, I read an interview with Rosario Dawson talking about her role as Mimi in Rent, and she shared how she had so many people complimenting her on her weight loss. Prior to that role, she was already a thin woman, but to play Mimi, she made herself, as she put it, emaciated. Honestly, my own experience with thinness was somewhat similar. When I was a teenager, I developed what I now know was IBS. At the time, my symptom was being so nauseous that I could barely eat. I went from a size medium and very athletic to, in my opinion, skeletal. I didn't want to lose weight, and it was a huge source of stress for me because I didn't know what was wrong, and I was tired of feeling nauseous all the time. But oh my lord, the compliments! 
backhanded ones as well, but overall approval and a real lack of concern for my actual health, coupled with insistence that I looked healthy. I didn't. Thin and skinny are used as coded words for being healthy, and they shouldn't be. Dr. Lindo Bacon, a fantastic author and expert on the topic of weight and health, has been talking for years and years about this tendency. They're probably most well-known for their book, Health at Every Size. Aspen, could you tell me a little bit more about that quote from earlier? To preface this quote, I'll give a little bit of context for this chapter of Lindo Bacon's Health at Every Size, titled, We're Victims of Fat Politics. They explain that this is one of the only chapters in which they use the words obese and overweight, because these terms are useless when it actually comes to health, and they hold a lot of stigma. They also point out a really good question, over what weight? These terms are used in this chapter because they are discussing misrepresentations of information from the CDC, and those are the terms used. Bacon says, quote, no obesity myth is more potent than the one that says obesity kills. It gives us permission to call our fear of fat a health concern rather than naming it as the cultural oppression that it is. That obesity kills has been the backbone of the federal public health campaign. Yet, quote, it is still far from certain whether there is any measurable mortality toll at all among overweight and obese Americans as a group, writes Center for Disease Control epidemiologist Catherine Flegel and colleagues in JAMA. Their research found that even severe obesity failed to show up as a statistically significant mortality risk and suggested that overweight may actually be protective. Lindo actually discusses that last point in other spots in the chapter, referencing an assortment of studies that have found that people who are overweight according to the BMI, live longer than people in the so-called normal weight category. The science shows that being fat isn't bad for your health, but the stigma is. On top of that, our society's obsession with health is ableist. For reasons completely unrelated to my weight, I will never be healthy by certain standards. I have hypermobile joints and no thyroid due to cancer. Not fitting the ideal model of a healthy person shouldn't make people see me as less than. I'd like to go back to what you said, quote, being fat isn't bad for your health, but the stigma is. In fact, research demonstrates attempting to use shame as a method to get people to change their behavior is at best ineffective and can be incredibly traumatizing and ultimately have the opposite effect. One thing that really drives shame around weight and fatness is the BMI. I see this happen in a variety of settings, from gym or health class as early as elementary school to healthcare providers' offices. Kat, tell me some more about the BMI. I mean, let's start with the founder, Lambert Adolphe Jacques Quetelet, a Belgian mathematician who introduced the BMI in the early 19th century. M- mathematician? Don't you mean physician? Nope, he was a mathematician with no medical background. He also worked in sociology, astronomy, and statistics. Oh, that's not too promising, but tell me more. 
Well, the point of the BMI was to measure obesity in the population to determine allocation of government resources. It ignores waist size, bone density, muscle density, muscle to fat ratio, etc. In fact, Quigley had to create a formula to match the data. As NPR says in an article on this topic, if you can't fix the data, rig the formula. You mentioned what one of the purposes of the BMI was, but tell me more about Quigley's goals. His whole shtick was figuring out the characteristics of the average man, which he saw as the ideal. In creating the BMI, he only ever took measurements of French and Scottish participants. So you're telling me that a concept created by a mathematician with no background in human anatomy or physiology, based only on data meant to show the average weight-to-height ratio of French and Scottish people 200 years ago, is used today to try and tell all kinds of people whether or not they're healthy? Yep, and not too surprisingly, his work in seeking out the average man was used as justification for eugenics. Yikes, and I thought that I couldn't hate the BMI more than I already do. Now, I'm going to stop us here for just a second for another Mabel's Fast Fact from Abby. The first 3D sonography of the stimulated clitoris was completed by French researchers in 2009. To learn more about the clitoris, visit the News from Mabel's blog on our website, mabelwadsworth.org. I want to shift back into talking about the body positivity movement and how we became aware of it. I know that for me, social media plays a big role, sometimes in negative ways, like the example I gave about the people using it to promote weight loss products, but also in positive ways, like the work of Sonia Renee Taylor, creator of The Body Is Not An Apology, who I first learned of through Facebook. I first encountered The Body Is Not An Apology as a poem, but it grew into a book and a whole movement. Something that's really important, I think, is the base of why Sonia came up with that phrase. Sonia's website says, The Body Is Not An Apology began as a conversation between two friends. Natasha feared she had an unintended pregnancy. And when Sonia asked why Natasha had chosen to have unprotected sex with a casual partner, Natasha shared that her cerebral palsy made it difficult to be sexual, and thus she did not feel entitled to ask her sexual partner to use a condom. Sonia's response was swift. Your body is not an apology. You do not use it to say, sorry for my disability. I know we've mentioned ableism in relation to body positivity and fat phobia already, and I think that's just another great example of the intersection between the two. Going off that, and another example of really good social media representation of the fight against fat stigma is the Instagram and Twitter account, Your Fat Friend, spelled Y-R-F-A-T-F-R-I-E-N-D. Yes, she's one of my favorites and has really opened my eyes to the anti-fat biases I hold. I think it's important to acknowledge that even as fat people ourselves, we can still participate in and hold fat phobia. One post of hers that is really fantastic reads, if you don't know a person's, a fat person's health history, but you're concerned for their health, you're not concerned. You're judging based, someone based solely on how they look. Yes. Also, that's just kind of nosy. Another thing that your fat friend talks about is the difference between fat folks who are small fat versus big fat. 
Yeah, that's something that really made me stop and analyze my biases and my privileges. Logically, it makes sense that as someone who is small fat, I'd face less fat phobia than someone fatter than me. But it wasn't something I'd thought about because I had the privilege not to. Fat phobia also, unsurprisingly, varies culturally, whether we're talking about between countries or among subcultures within the same country. And even then, you get a lot of variation. One thing really interesting to me is fat phobia and gay and bi men. On the one hand, you have the bear community, larger, fat, hairy men, though usually it's only the white ones who get visibility. On the other hand, it is not uncommon on Grindr to see profiles that say things like, no fats, no fans. It should also be noted that bisexual men have much higher rates of eating disorders than straight men. Eating disorders and the driving factors behind them are complicated, but as bisexual people in general face a great deal of health disparities due to discrimination and stigma, this one isn't particularly surprising, as harmful and sad as it may be. I've also noticed a lot more acceptance of a variety of bodies among lesbians and bisexual women, but fat phobia is certainly baked into our culture at large, so it seeps into everything. And we're not giving straight people a pass on this either, to be clear. Body positivity and fat phobia are such big topics, and this is really just the tip of the iceberg. If you want to learn more about this topic in depth, which you should, definitely check out the resources we've mentioned. Kat, thanks for talking about body positivity with me today. Thanks, Aspen. It was great. See you next time.